0: How's everyone doing this morning? It's, I uh, feel like it's been a while. Andy's been up here a lot, under under the pressure of preaching every week for about a month now. But it's exciting to, um, to be alongside him in this. And uh, we've obviously started a, a series in Philippians, and so this morning I am going to Highlight uh, something that takes place towards the end of chapter one and into the beginning of chapter two, which is being unified in Christ. And so, obviously, when we think about unity and we think about oh, being unified and like let's be one big happy family and all these things, we can roll our eyes. It's a it's a message we've heard a million times, but the prayer is always the same: is that God would take something that we have heard a hundred times and that we know so well to reveal something that we don't yet know through revelation. And Revelation carries the empowerment to do the thing that God has called us to do. And so this morning, why don't you turn with me into Philippians 1, uh, verse 27. It's titled, Life Worthy of the Gospel. And it says this, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in Spirit and of one mind. It's cool, we listen to all these songs this morning. We sing along worship and worship and they're reminding us about what the main thing is that we're all gathered here uh, today for. And if you go through every letter that Paul wrote to New Testament churches, he said this same thing. Fight for unity. Keep the unity through the bond of um, through the spirit and the bond of peace, right? He's, and there's this constant theme where he's saying be unified, be one, be together in what, in what it is that God has called you to. And I was thinking, too, that Philippians, as as Andy shared this morning, is that we don't necessarily have to just be in the freedom before we can celebrate it, before we can lift our voices and all these things. And Paul must have been sitting in this prison when he was writing this letter, which is often called the Epistle of Joy. And he must have been sitting there thinking like, okay, well, here I am in prison. And when was the last time I was in prison? Oh, right, when this church that I'm going to write to was planted. And it would have been so interesting for him to reminisce about how uh, wonderful it was that he wasn't in prison alone. Right? He was in prison with Silas. And I can just imagine that picture of them together. The Bible says that they were singing hymns and spiritual songs. They were worshiping God. And I'm sure at first it started pretty quiet. And then all of a sudden Silas maybe brings a little bit more heat to the table. And then all of a sudden, Paul starts to just amplify a little bit. And before they know it, they're both together in unison, in unity, declaring the praises of God. And how amazing would that have been? How hard would it have been to do that by yourself, but to have someone else in your ribs, um, like Paul did with Silas, and to be able to work together in that? Um, Listen to Ecclesiastes 4.9. It says this, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up, but pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. And I was thinking, what, what is it about unity? Like obviously it's something we preach, you know, Psalm 133, how beautiful it is, right? The, the oil flowing down the head. It's like when, uni, when, brother, when brothers dwell together in unity, it's like the oil It's falling down the head. It's just this beautiful picture of the, the commanded blessing of God. And we can hear that thing and it's like, cool, like we can dream about that in the context of the corporate. But I believe we have to really consider unity in the context of the individual. Because there's a part that we, each each and every one of us has to play. And if you look into John 17, um, Jesus is actually just about to pray his final prayer over his disciples before he gets arrested. And it says this in verse 20. He says, I do not pray for these alone. It is not for their sake only that I make this request, but also for all those who will ever believe and trust in me through their message, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, so that the world may believe without any doubt that you sent me. I have given to them the glory and honor which you have given me, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfected and completed into one, so that the world may know without any doubt that you sent me, and that you have loved me, and that you have loved them just as you have loved me. It's interesting, what, what Christ is saying here is, please, Lord, let them be unified. Why? <laughs> because I want to reveal myself to a world through a unified church. And I think it's profound for us to think about that because so often in our journey in life, we are, we are constantly saying this, God, what is your plan for my life? And it's, it's kind of a cultured prayer because it's very individual. It's very individualistic. But the Bible is clear is that many are the plans in a man's heart, but it's God's purpose that prevails. And I believe for us as a North American church that the prayer that God is calling us to pray is not, God, what is your plan for my life? But no, God, how does my life fit into your purpose? Yeah. Because the second we start to do those things, like we've talked about now, oh, 180, 180 needs help, 180 needs help. Andy preached an amazing service last week to encourage us how 180 needs help. But you know how a church gets old? When no one helps in 180. 180. And how many of you are a part of this community now because you wanted to be a part of a young, vibrant church with young families? Put your hand up. Be honest. Okay, a lot of people. So how does that culture continue in a local church? It's challenging, but it's true. Because what happens is we often shop for churches as if we're shopping for clothes. How does that church fit my needs? Oh, does it have a good kids program? Does it have good worship? Does it have good preachers? You're like, some of you this morning, like, I am leaving this church this morning. <laughs> does it have this? Does it have that? All these things. And the, the reality is we shop for churches like a consumer. Let's just be honest. It is what we do in North America because it's how we live our lives in North America. Yeah. You know, my, this week my cell phone conked out. I don't have it on me. My cell phone conked out. And I thought, you know what? Yeah, I've been with a company for 10 years. What the heck? Let me go shop around. Let me go see if I can get a better deal. Why? That's what we do. It's, it's consumer mentality. But we do the same with the church. As soon as, this, as soon as the church stops meeting our needs, we start shopping for a new community that meets my needs. But it, is a, it, it literally is a journey of immaturity, isn't it? How can everything else serve me? Why don't you... Sorry, that was not in my notes. Um... Why don't you turn with me to Genesis 11? It says this. It's the, story, it's the story of the Tower of Babel. Because I want to draw a parallel in, in, in the context of unity and community from the Tower of Babel to uh, something that takes place in the New Testament. So it says this. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. And the Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. Verse 8. So the Lord scattered them from there over the whole earth and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel or Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world and from there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Amazing, eh? The only two things they wanted, they didn't get. (laughs) So there's two simple observations in this story. If you heard it, I mean, we've heard it a million times. First observation, they used brick instead of stone. Observation number two, they said, come, let us make a name for ourselves. And then there's one interesting observation that God makes. Because it's a powerful one. And it's about unity. And he says this. One people speaking the same language can see the impossible take place. It's profound. We're talking about humanity functioning outside of God. Self-effort, all the things. And God says if they put their mind to it, speaking the same language, nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Matthew 12 you know, Jesus is kind of painting this picture of, of, of the power of unity again in a, in a different way. Matthew 12 is a story where there's um, someone who needs healing. And Jesus performs a miracle. And the Pharisees, the religious people, are there. And they say, oh, he's just doing this miracle. He's casting out demons by the power of the devil. And Jesus is like, okay, hang on. Hang on. That doesn't make any sense. He goes, no kingdom divided against itself stands. Well, that's counterproductive, right? No, nothing. So, so if, if the devil is driving out demons, he's actually weakening what's going on here. Right? No household divided against itself will stand. But, but you can follow that through because he does it a few times. Kingdom, household, he says a few things. Right? But follow it through. No church divided against itself will stand. No city divided against itself will stand. No family divided against itself will stand. No leadership team. We're not divided. (laughs) But it's true, right? I mean, you think about how easy is it to to, to split a room? Pick any hot topic, right? Anything will split a room. Put 10 people in that room and ask them about what their worldview is. Politics, the pandemic, minimum wage, the war in Ukraine. Any topic, you'll split a room. But that's not new. That was happening in Jesus' time to Mark 9. Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant, and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, What were you guys arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet, because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. (laughs) Guys, read the room. (laughs) Jesus, I'm about to die. Guys, I'm going to die. Okay, guys, I think I'm the greatest. Read the room, right? What does Christ say? Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. And you get a very, what was it, in the Amplified, it says, you get a very special seat in the kingdom if you volunteer in 180. <laughs> um Yeah, when we, I was like, is it juxtaposition for position or is it juxtaposition? I think it's juxtaposition, but we always say juxtaposition. That feels more right. But when we're juxtaposition, for position, we all it always leads to dividing things. It never leads to unity. But servant-hearted leadership, servant-hearted leading, um, servant-heartedness always leads to unity. And I think part of that is that we understand that. Unity is about knowing what part of the body I am. It's very profound. Like Andy actually spoke on, the, on this maybe two weeks ago about um, the body has many parts. And we, we know this story, it's in 1 Corinthians. Um, but the important thing about it is that we as followers of Jesus know that our, our identity does not come from our function. In other words, I don't find my significance because of what part of the body I am. I find my significance because of the body that I am a part of. Right? And so um, there's two things, I believe, that, that are dealt with in 1 Corinthians. We can read it. 1 Corinthians 12 um, that we should consider when it comes to this idea that unity is about knowing what part of the body I am. Because oftentimes we can say, I don't know my gifting, or I don't know what I am bringing to the table. And that can lead to two things. One is like, oh, I always feel misunderstood, or I always feel inferior, or that person has such an obvious gift and I don't know what mine is. Right? But the truth is, I think the Bible deals with these two things. A superiority complex and an inferiority complex. And it says this in uh, 1 Corinthians 12. It's talking about one body, many parts. It says this, The body is a unit. Though it is made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free. And we were all given the one spirit to drink. Now the body is not made up of one, but of many parts. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be a part of the body. Friends, it doesn't matter if you are connected or not connected to a local church. That doesn't determine if you are a follower of Jesus. But how effective would the body function if the foot said, ah, because I'm not a hand, then I'm just not going to function. Imagine trying to cut tomatoes with your feet. People do it, and it's incredible, but it's also weird if you have hands. <laughs> but what's he dealing with? He's dealing with an inferiority complex. Oh, because I'm not the person standing on the podium, I, I shouldn't be in that community. Or I'm going to go look for a podium elsewhere where I can have my space and this is this. What? Well, that's a one-size-fits-all mentality. That's a worldly theology. That's building with bricks. What's he saying? He's saying the foot should be the foot. Just like the classic analogy, we never, see, uh, we never see a kidney on the front cover of the Vogue magazine. No, we see symmetrically perfect faces. But if that symmetrical perfect face lost a kidney, they'd be in trouble. Wow, I wasn't planning on preaching, but sheesh. <laughs> so the point is, know my part, play my part. Do it with a servant heart. And then it says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. Superiority complex. Imagine that. The body is all one big eye. That's creepy. (laughs) All the prophetic people in one corner. The Everything is all about seeing. It's seeing. It's seeing. But nobody ordered the buns. Right. Crazy though, isn't it? Superiority complex. Because you're not this, you're not this. It's kind of funny. But I think both of those things point to the fact that our significance comes from what we are part of, not what part we are. You know, it's like Jesus knew who he was, but it didn't hold him back from being servant-hearted. It's like Jesus... You remember, like, he still washed the disciples' feet even though they didn't read the room the other day. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, God, who's the greatest? Like, we don't want to tell you because we were arguing on the road after you told us you were going to die. We were thinking about ourselves. And yet Jesus still washed their feet. He didn't qualify them based on their worthiness. He qualified them based on his servant-heartedness. Unity is about choosing the right battles. Can you imagine Jesus could have prayed anything as his last prayer before he was arrested and yet he prays for us the the followers to come and he says that they would be one. He prayed for unity in his church as the last thing that he prayed. It's quite interesting and I think unity is about choosing the right battles. Um It's like, is it really, is it really worth being more passionate about shadow battles? Who here? And let's just be honest for a second, because my hand is up. Who here has um, felt relational strain because of a shadow battle that you've chosen in the last couple of years? Okay, good. That's honest, and I bet there's. I'm sure there's a stat for it. If 10 people put up their hands, it's actually 50. <laughs> Something like that. Um, but it's crazy because shadow battles detract from the real battle. And Christ was praying, not that we would all agree on our political views, on this, on that, and all that. He's saying, I pray that you would be one. Why? So that he would be revealed to people who are dying. Why? Because unity is required for a church to reflect Christ. Colossians 1, listen to this. We preach Christ. I think it's in the message. We preach Christ, warning people not to add to the message. We teach in a spirit of profound common sense so that we can bring each person to maturity. To be mature is to be basic. Christ, no more, no less. That's what I'm working so hard at day after day, year after year, doing my best with the energy that God so generously gives me. Man, we always think we grow up in we grow up in our faith and and then we just start getting complex, you know. It's like, oh, you know, when I became a Christian, it was milk, and now it's meat, and all these things. And and so, what is it now? Are you pre-trib, post-trib? Are you, are, you know, do, is your faith have space for the apocalyptic something or other? Is you are you this? Are you that? Right? What's the Greek word for all good things? But things that that can often put complexity into something that was designed to be simplistic. And complexity often leads to disunity. But Paul, Paul, said that we have, what did he say? I forget. He said, we teach in a spirit of profound common sense. Isn't that just like a breath of fresh air? It's like when you talk to someone, like how, someone who's just recently given their life to Christ, it's like often the story is like pretty simple. I just, I just felt the love of God. I just, I just felt like something washed over me. It's like, that is just simple. I just felt like all the, the sin of my past, the baggage, like I had this weight on my neck and my shoulders, and all of a sudden it was gone. And it's like, that is simple. Right? It's Paul. To be mature is to be basic. Christ, no more, no less. And if we think about Paul, he went to the third heaven. He, he experienced things. Two, 2 Corinthians 12. He experienced things that he saw that he wasn't allowed to talk about on earth. Can you imagine Can you imagine experiencing, like, who would not want to take pride in that and lord it over others? Well, have you been to the third heaven? And yet, Paul, when he could have done all those things, what happens? When he's faced up against the so-called super apostles, what does he say? He goes, no, I'm not going there. I'm going to keep it simple. Christ, nothing more, nothing less. Not wise and persuasive words. I could tell you what I saw in that realm, but why? Why do that? No, the important thing is that there's unity in the body through simplicity of the message. Or how about this one? Paul, uh, Andy probably touched on this um, because he went through this part. But Philippians is, is, Paul is writing in prison to a church that was planted from prison. And he's there and he's stuck and he can't get out. And he can see that there's things going on in the Philippian church that... Are so obviously the motives are wrong. All these things are just wrong. Like l- listen to what he says. He says in verse 15 of chapter 1 it is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. Okay, who here is ever who here has ever watched someone online like a preacher, and you just get this nasty feeling, or maybe. Maybe in real person, in real life, you get this nasty feeling that they're not being sincere. Or it just feels a bit cringy. It's like it's slimy. It's like everything just gels a little too well. And like lean into the syllable. You know what I'm saying? And, And you could take an offense in that and you could think, man, that is, I'm throwing that away and all these things. But imagine now you're in prison and you can see that people are using the message of the gospel maliciously to keep you in prison. It's not just you not enjoying someone who's doing a slimy job of a sermon. No, it's you going, someone is maliciously trying to attack me using the message of the gospel. It's a crazy thought. And what happens here is Paul has to settle something. What does it matter? That's his response. You can imagine you're in chains. You realize, okay, I'm actually helpless. I can't do anything, you know. What does it matter? That's where where the point that he comes to. And he says the important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. That's crazy. That's a crazy thought. You know what? When I get out of this prison, I'm going to preach a gospel like they've never heard. They're going to be on the ground repenting. I'm gonna tell them what I saw in that third heaven, and you're gonna watch them crumble. Come on, we've all done the self talk. We know about it. The things we, it's a different kind of third heaven. We'd never mutter that out loud. Sorry. Gosh, it's okay to laugh. Sheesh. (laughs) Or how about this? Man, I'm not really into that one. I'm not really into that speaker. I'm not really into the, that worship. and I don't know. It's just so mainstream now. Da, 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 da. Who's your favorite? Who do you listen to? Right? That's not new either. You know, the Corinthian church, same thing. Oh, I'm, I'm Paul's disciple. Well, I'm a Paulist's disciple. Well, I'm this and I'm that. And Paul is basically like, Idiots! Did I die for you? Did I die for your sins? Did Apollos plant you as a church? No. Paul plants Apollos' waters, but it's God who makes it grow. It's God who builds it. You know? What does it say then? Neither he who plants nor he who sows is of any something along those lines, of any of any value, but maybe I'm wrong. Unity uh, well, unity acknowledges that Jesus. Christ is the master builder. Andy preached on this a couple weeks ago. Matthew 16. Jesus with his disciples. Who do you say that I am? You're Christ. Yes. And what? And I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail. You know? I will build my church. And Peter, no, you won't. You won't die. I rebuke you, Peter. It's not your plan, it's my plan. It's also nice to know that Christ is building his church, and we aren't. We are participating, we're planting, we're watering, we're doing all the things. But when that harvest comes, you realize I don't know anyone here at the veggie garden, you can do all the work. But when those, when those, Vegetables or fruits come. There's a part of you that's like a little bit surprised because you're like, man, like I bought this thing this big or a seed, seedling form, and and like look at this, it weighs ten times as much. It's producing fruit. It's like it's amazing to look at because you realize, yeah, you did some things, you participated in the process, but the but the the impossible reality of something from nothing we didn't take part in. We just. We just watched it take place. Going back to the story of Babel, it says, they experienced confusion of language and that led to them being scattered away from their building mission, right? That was their biggest fear. Let's make a name for ourselves so we're not scattered all over the earth. What happens? God changes their language and the, the natural reaction is that they lose their vision for what they're doing and they get scattered, their very fear, all over the earth. But what about in Acts 2, on the day of Pentecost? Because I was thinking, you know, like surely they could just figure it out in, Bab- in, in Babel, Babel. Like they could have just figured it out, like, oh, just keep doing what you're doing. I know we can't talk this, thing. just keep doing what you're doing. No, but it led to such confusion that they all were scattered and did their own thing. But the same thing happens in Acts 2. They're gathered together in an upper room, and then all of a sudden their language gets confused. Has anyone thought about that? I was thinking, what is going on here? Well, what's happening, I think, is God confuses their language, not because they were building a tower up, but because he was pouring out his spirit down. And what takes place is that while their language was confused, their message was unified, Unity is not just about us getting along. Unity is about you and I stepping into what God has called us to. Speaking out what he has called us to speak. And in doing that we start to rub shoulders and declare the same message. Babel. Let's make a name for ourselves. What do the people say on, on Pentecost? Who are, what is going on here? These people are declaring the praises of God. Very different. The other beautiful thing about Babel is that it specifically says that they built with bricks, not with stones. Right? And we know bricks are all the same shape, size, right? They're, you're building very systematically in all these things. But the beautiful thing is that the scripture is clear, and we've, we've all heard this is that the Bible describes followers of Jesus as living stones, not living bricks. And I think there's tremendous relief in that, because often, and and the church as a whole is guilty of this, in North America, typically churches look very similar. Right? Similar, like music setup, similar preaching platform, similar, like coffee stations, and all this stuff. And often, what happens is there's a lot of people that can get missed in the mix because they don't fit the brick of the North American church. But the incredible thing is that while sometimes us in our humanness are busy building churches to look the same, Jesus Christ is building his church with living stones. And that living stones means that you and I have a space in community somewhere, somehow. And I don't always know how it works, but I have to tell you, Jesus has made us this promise that he will build his church, and he builds it as a living stone. In other words, he's been in our shoes. He knows your situation. He knows my situation. He knows what it is to be a misfit. He knows what it is to be an exact fit. He knows every end of the spectrum. And yet he still chooses to build with stones, not bricks. Listen to this. In the Amplified Bible, in Genesis, the same story about the Tower of Babel, it says this, and the whole earth was full, sorry, and the whole earth was of one language, and of one accent, and one mode of expression. And isn't it crazy? On Pentecost, the exact opposite thing happens. They were gathered together in the, in the one room, speaking the same language, and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit moves, changes their language, unifies their message, and sends them out. Babel was scared of being scattered. The church was scattered and spread like wildfire. And I believe, can you imagine if they all came out speaking the same language? I mean, there was people visiting from every area at that time in Acts 2. And it just so happened that God speaks through all of these Same type of people in different languages to reach different people. Can you imagine how many people would have missed the gospel if Christ hadn't done that through the power of the Holy Spirit? I believe God is saying that he has given us people who speak our language, your language, so that you can reach them. But with the same message of the gospel. 1 Peter 2, 4 to 8. Winding down. So keep coming to him who is the living stone. Though he was rejected and discarded by men, but chosen by God and is priceless in God's sight, come and be his living stones. We are in union with him, and we share his nature and his intent. That's that's what it means to be a living stone who are continually being assembled into a sanctuary for God. For now you serve as holy priests, offering up spiritual sacrifices that he readily accepts through Jesus Christ. For it says in scripture, Look, I lay a cornerstone in Zion, a chosen and priceless stone. And whoever believes in him will certainly not be disappointed. As believers, you know his great worth indeed. His preciousness is imparted to you. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected and discarded has now become the cornerstone and a stone that makes them stumble and a rock to trip over. It's like there's such comfort in knowing us as individuals are fully seen and fully loved by Christ. But there's also such comfort to know That the priority and the message of the gospel is one. It's unified. Colossians 1.18. In the message, he was supreme in the beginning and leading the resurrection parade, he is supreme in the end. From beginning to end, he's there, towering far above everything and everyone. So spacious is he, so expansive... That everything of God finds its proper place in him without crowding. I love it. Everything of God finds its proper place in him without crowding. Mm -hmm. That's profound. Because there's something claustrophobic that can happen in local church, which is healthy. We rub shoulders. People rub us the wrong way. We disagree. All those kinds of things. Wouldn't it be funny? Okay? Not funny. Wouldn't it be eye-opening? Okay? Let's say your husband and wife, you're fighting over what shirt your kid is going to wear. Okay? This one. No, this one. This one. No, this one. Okay? And then at the same time, that kid runs into the middle of the road, and there's a car coming at extremely high speed. This is not in my notes, so I don't know the ending yet. <laughs> I don't know why I'm talking like this this morning. Um, What would happen? How much would you care about the shirt? Right? You'd both or one of you would sprawl to the middle of the road. Why? Because there's a way more important situation at hand. I think in the North American church, we get so hung up on situations or battles or things that are just... Not that important. Churches get split over the color of the carpet. That is like, that's crazy privilege. Like, when you think about it. It's crazy privilege. People leave, people leave churches because they don't like a sermon that was preached. They get offended. As if God doesn't offend our minds to reveal our hearts. He does that. But that's the kind of stuff that people leave churches over. They don't like this. They don't like that. And then you wonder why you can't find community anywhere. It's not because communities haven't opened their doors to us. It's because we haven't opened our doors to community. Why? Probably because we disqualify them for this, that, or the other. And yet Jesus still washed his disciples' feet even though he knew they were juxting for position. Even though he just told them he's going to die. He didn't get offended. He moved on. He said, "You're a human being. You have a part to play. You're fallible, but I'm still going to use you." Right? Wasn't it Peter? Oh, sorry. Wasn't it Judas when that when that lady broke the oil over Jesus's head, and uh, and he said, "You know, what are you doing? Like that money could be used for the poor." Oh, that's so noble. And then the same Judas took money to betray? You know what I'm saying? It's like often the things that we are taking offense in are not actually everyone else, they're us. And they hold us back from unity. And there has to be a time in our lives where we pull up our sleeves and we grow up and we lay down the unnecessary battles to fight the ultimate battle. Because God wants to raise up a generation of people, of young people. And if we don't roll up our sleeves, no one else is going to. You know, this this is this rude awakening that takes place in parenting when you suddenly realize that if you don't parent your kids, someone else will. And I really hope it's not our school system, our daycares. I really hope it's not those places. I hope it's us. Followers of Jesus who know that the message is simple, but the expression is diverse. Some of us haven't found our place in community because the things that are prioritized for us are actually not God things. Listen to this. So spacious is he, so expansive, that everything of God finds its proper place in him. If the thing that you are ready to die for cannot find its place in the church, there's a good chance it's not of God. Because everything of God finds its place in him. Unity is about giving space to the things that are of God. And the beautiful thing is that Christ is the cornerstone. Anyone we know, cornerstone is maybe not so common language anymore outside of the church. But the, typically, the cornerstone is the first stone that is laid in a building project. So as Christ is the cornerstone, he becomes the reference point for all other stones laid subsequent to it, which is you and I. And everything finds its definition in this one, in this one piece, the cornerstone. So as I close, can I exhort you with something this morning? And I want to exhort us with what unites us far outweighs the things that divide us. And I believe God is so interested in everybody out there that unity is so important to him in here. Ephesians 4, 1 to 3 says this. I'm reading out of the message. It says, in light of all of this, here's what I want you to do. While I'm locked up here, A prisoner for the master, I want you to get out there and walk. Better yet, run on the road God called you to travel. I don't want any of you sitting around on your hands. I don't want anyone strolling off down some path that goes nowhere. And mark that you do this with humility and discipline. Not in fits and starts, but steadily. Pouring yourselves out for each other in acts of love. Alert at noticing differences and quick at mending fences. You were all called to travel on the same road and in the same direction. So stay together, both outwardly and inwardly. You have one master, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who rules over all, works through all, and is present in all. Everything you are and think and do is permeated with oneness. Let's remember all those things that keep us together. Amen? Amen.